0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tjasa Zeit, and this is the fourth part of a series about patients' perspectives on digital health and healthcare. So far, you've been able to listen to Roy Sternin explaining how he diagnosed himself after the doctors gave up on him. I'm not a super organized person, but I decided that I'm I have to adapt the way doctors think and work, the scientific methods they use in order to make this thing even possible. And what I did, I kind of studied first of all the medical system, the scientific way the doctors work, like because we we don't think about it as science sometimes because it looks like a, something very procedural, administrative. But there is a very strong science behind the methodology and protocols in in healthcare. And When I figure out how to structure my process in a way that I actually copy the way doctor works and I try to find a differential diagnosis and try to statistically eliminate uh, all the other possible conditions, then I could start actually. Marina Borukovic, who suffered from breast cancer, explained her journey to Your Coach, a platform she created for health coaches to enable them to treat each patient holistically.
1: So, you know, I needed boxing at first and maybe I needed meditation later and maybe I needed somebody to help me with my nutrition at some point or sleep management and all that just ebbs and flows and there's no reason to assume that one person can be there for you to help with that all. It takes a squad. It takes a village.
0: And that's what we're building. Bettina Rill, a Swedish patient advocate, founder of Melanoma Patient Network Europe, shares her view on advocacy in the US compared to Europe and talked about the importance of pain management in early stages of serious diseases such as cancer. If there's one thing that I regret is that. Uh, so my sister is actually a pain specialist,
1: and he, my husband, was in a quite a bit of pain, and um, we already were better what, than what most people could get, just because we had someone in the family whom I could ring sometimes at three at night and say, and "What do I do now?" And um, but before he died, the palliative care team placed uh, like a pain catheter, just like a, a relatively simple thing, and he said that this is, was the least pain he had felt in the entire year. And that is something that I regret in hindsight. I should have just insisted on a specialized painting from the very, very beginning. And that's something that I think that's easily overlooked. So that even if you cannot change the outcome, you can change the way to it. And pain management is, is probably the most neglected thing all over.
0: And today you will hear Grace Cordovana talk about how to prepare for a doctor's appointment, to get most out of it. She vividly described situations patients are in because medical records are not digitized. And she also talked about why she, as an advocate, was judging the partnership between Google and Ascension Health, one of the U.S. largest nonprofit healthcare systems, which was announced last year, if you prefer. You can find the recap of the discussion on our website, www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And if you're interested in any of the other episodes mentioned in the beginning, find them in your podcast player. Find the direct link to the recap of the show in the show notes. Now to the discussion with Grace, who is an expert healthcare navigating solutionist and award-winning board-certified patient advocate specializing in the oncology space. Grace is the founder of Enlightening Results and Unblock Health, which is a suite of services that finally provides patients and care partners with a way to level the playing field and demand access to critical information needed to make informed, engaged, and empowered decisions about their care. Grace, uh, let's start with your story and your. Passed with hospitals, healthcare systems and illnesses on a very personal level. When she was 48, your mom was diagnosed with cancer and you yourself were diagnosed with cancer years later in your life, but it turned out that you have actually been misdiagnosed. So let's start there a little bit. What was the experience like for you as a family member of a
1: patient with cancer and then your own story? So my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, a very aggressive form of breast cancer at the young age of 48, actually on her very first mammogram, which I encouraged her to go to. I had been navigating healthcare my entire life, so my day-to-day right now is a board-certified patient advocate specializing in the oncology space, and I work with patients to help them navigate their cancer diagnosis and the healthcare system. So at the time, um, I have been navigating for family and friends for years. My family is from Poland and immigrated to the United States. And while I was born here, I didn't speak English when I started school. So English is my second language. So naturally, once I got the hang of speaking English, I was attending doctor appointments and translating all of the notes and all of the medical lease so that my family and friends could understand what was going on and how to navigate their care. So eventually, here I am in college, and I said, Mom, you really should go for your mammogram. And sh- sure enough, she went, and, and and they found more than something. Um, she is now a breast cancer survivor. Um, the experience for me uh, was very traumatic. Uh, again, I jumped into uh, being a care partner for her, um, while being a senior in college, um, I'm extremely close with my mom and um, diving into that role was scary. And I'll never forget when the doctor on their first infusion appointment, uh, the doctor started to go over all the different medications she would be receiving and they emphasized all the side effects and I fainted. Um, and when I came around, not only was there no empathy, I got yelled at for causing a stir in the clinic. Um, I asked if I could lie down and they said the beds are for patients. And then the doctor said, if I had any questions, eventually stopped back in. And, and I said, you know, this is going to be a cure. And they said, there is no cure. And I couldn't believe in my small world at that time that there wasn't a cure. This was America. My family was so proud of being here that everything here was so cutting edge. And this was the place for healthcare. And, And here my mom was in limbo. Uh, now she is a breast cancer survivor and that experience inspired me to go on to grad school to better understand biochemistry of metabolic disease and why diseases don't respond to treatments and what goes wrong. I I also eventually got a diagnosis of advanced lymphoma. I remember my doctor calling me and I worked in New York at the time and he told me immediately to come to his office and they had run some tests and found that uh, I had a very large mediastinal mass in the middle of my chest, as well as numerous masses throughout my body on a PET scan. And they called Sloan Kettering in New York uh, to set me up with a thoracic surgeon. They told me it's advanced lymphoma, and I needed a second opinion. And the only question that I asked at that time was if I was going to die. I don't remember hearing anything. The doctor kept talking, and here I was, someone that spoke the language, had insurance, uh, was able to understand biochemistry of metabolic disease. All of these privileges awarded to me, and it brought me to my knees, and that really was um, something that I was blessed to walk out of. Four and a half months later, it turned out to be a misdiagnosis and a fungal infection that I had acquired on my honeymoon two years prior called histoplasmosis.
0: Wow, but four months later, I thought that, you know, the misdiagnosis was cleared much sooner. How did you feel, like, after you learned that everything you thought you had actually wasn't true?
1: You know, at that moment, so I had a number of tests, biopsies. I had to coordinate my medical records, set up appointments, insurance clearance, um, I had biopsies that were inconclusive, imaging, blood work, finally a surgical procedure. I was placed in isolation after surgery for potential tuberculosis. Finally, the the doctor was able to come and tell me that this is indeed a fungal infection. And the relief and the disbelief, and then there's a mix of anger trying to understand how this could happen because I didn't even need treatment. I just had to come in for a follow-up because... A healthy immune system clears this naturally without needing really any treatment. And here I also was recovering because I was in the hospital a few days recovering after surgery. Um, here I am amongst all these people who are so sick. And to be fortunate, almost feeling so um, burdened with guilt. Why me? Why am I the one that's allowed to walk through these doors without a cancer diagnosis? So it's a very uh, big mix of emotions to have to process.
0: But you weren't treated for uh, your initial diagnosis of lymphoma um, in those four months. By the way, how, how many years ago was this? 11. How many years ago? 11 years. When your mom was diagnosed, how many years
1: ago? So she was diagnosed in 2003. So we were about five years apart.
0: Okay, so that's almost 20 years ago. Do you think things have changed by today in terms of how patients and their family are treated um, in hospitals in receiving the news?
1: No, they haven't. And I I do this, my day-to-day job is working with patients and their loved ones as they get these diagnoses, these earth-shattering diagnoses that are sometimes delivered on the phone, that are sometimes delivered very matter-of-factly, that it's no big deal, as if someone said, well, you know, I'm just going to go to the grocery store in the same way that they say, well, you have lung cancer, and they go through a checklist of things that's going to happen, and they walk out. So I think there definitely is room for improvement, and from my perspective, uh, our system is very fragmented. We are very fortunate to have access to many new technologies, new tests, genomics, precision medicine, but we're overwhelmed with technology and data and there's less and less time to spend with the patient in actual compassionate care.
0: It sounds like it's almost getting worse rather than better in terms of the relationship between the doctor and the patient.
1: I definitely do see friction and strain. Um, there's, and it's not to say there aren't amazing people in medicine and care, and in caregiving because there are. And the frustration on their end, and and I feel so sorry for so many people is this isn't what they signed up for. This is not the patient care. They're, they're, overwhelmed with administrative burden, electronic health record, documenting, fighting with insurance companies to precert things or overturn denials for care that they deemed their patients desperately needed. So it's a very overwhelming, frustrating situation, I think, for not just patients, but also the, the caregivers in hospitals and cancer centers and clinics across the nation.
0: So how do patients that you work with find you? And how many patients have you worked with so far? You found it enlightening results in
1: 2010. Mm -hmm. So I... Typically, when I work with patients, I usually take no more than three or four patients a month, and it's usually a long-term relationship. I will work with someone throughout their diagnosis, attending their appointments, their surgeries, their procedures, their imaging. Um, usually there'll be a little bit of a lull, perhaps while they're in treatment or, you know, if there's a three-month follow-up. Some people I work with they need specific things. It really depends on the person and what what their knowledge base is, what their challenges are, what their diagnosis is, and what resources and support system they have available. So there's really no two situations that are alike. Um, I also do, so I am hired privately. I have my own practice Enlightening Results. But many people can't afford a patient advocate. And I've also organically just become the go to person to talk to in the local community. Um, and the school systems and, and really in, in the local towns, if someone gets a cancer diagnosis, most people pick up the phone and call me. So I'm constantly relaying information, trying to connect people to the information and tools that they need. Sometimes people just need a few steps in the right direction, and they can be on their way, and I never hear from them again. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of patients.
0: What were the profiles of the patients, you know, because when we talk about chronic patients, the most commonly talked about are cancer patients, but there are so many other chronic diseases that are also debilitating and uh, can influence quality of health of people.
1: I focus on oncology because that's really my first love. Um, I love all things in the field, but just because you get a cancer diagnosis doesn't mean that you get a get-out-of-jail-free card and your diabetes goes away or your congestive heart failure gets better. So I'm really caring for people and providing what I call life-focused care, which entails understanding the person where they are and helping support them live the best life they can with their diagnoses wherever they may be. And you can't just treat the cancer diagnosis in the same way you can't just treat one aspect, one clinical thing. You have to treat the person that all of these diagnoses and complications reside. So I I, I work with a, a lot of different people that have multiple comorbidities, a number of different autoimmune or, or chronic illnesses as well without a cancer diagnosis. So my policy is really not to turn anyone away to listen mm-hmm. and really try to connect them as quickly as possible to the most prominent thing they need at that moment in time. And mm-hmm. most recently, uh, I haven't been in policy work much, but um, I had the opportunity to speak at the ONC annual meeting to be invited to bring the patient and care partner perspective to this discussion on balancing patient data access with privacy.
0: What were your takeaways out of that meeting?
1: What were the responses that you got? So I was humbled to be there to share the patient perspective. And, and I'll, with full disclosure, I am all about digitizing the patient experience. I want the adoption of digital technology and implementation of digital health and, and really uh, this concept of consumerization. However, we need to do it in a way that's authentic and meaningful and inclusive of what patients actually want and need. I think what was so receptive is I see this discussion morphing into two things. Um, we have HIPAA, and the majority of the concerns with adoption of these proposed um, interoperability rules was that patient privacy uh, could be compromised or placed at risk by third-party vendors and apps. And what I wanted to point out is that while the rule proposed rules are not perfect, the reality is, is that... People, millions of people on a day-to-day basis get an earth-shattering diagnosis or face an emergency, and they need access to their medical records, and they can't get them. And until you've been impacted and faced with that emergency, you have no idea how dire the situation is. I have people who have a cancer diagnosis or some a rare a form of a rare disease, and they need a second opinion. And you can't schedule, even schedule the appointment, which could be weeks away, until you get all of your records, all of your images on CD, pathology slides if necessary. You have to aggregate all of those from all different offices and locations and either physically pick them up and drive them yourself or mail them. It's such a convoluted, complex process. Meanwhile, you really could have a patient that's slowly dying, Waiting for these records. And I don't think people realize how dire the situation is. So I wanted to bring that to the discussion and say we, we have to all commit to doing no harm and ensuring that every patient can access their medical records when and if they should need them, because it can, it's a matter of life and death, not a matter of privacy.
0: Can you just explain uh, something to me? So for example, um, if you're a chronic patient or if you get a serious diagnosis uh, such as cancer, don't you get a copy of a discharge letter at home or something? So, you know, you could pile the discharge letters and
1: results at your home. If you're admitted to the hospital, there absolutely is a packet of papers that you send you home with. They're not really that useful if it doesn't have your radiology reports, your biopsy reports, your blood work, your clinical notes, your images on CD. So for example, for a non-cancer situation, let's say someone has um, a cardiac cardiology issue and they had a number of cardiology tests while they were admitted in the hospital. You need to bring images of those on CDs as well as the corresponding reports. That doesn't come with your discharge papers. They will advise you to go down to the medical records office, which could be in a different building in a basement, fill out a paper request of a medical records request and hand it to a person who then at some point hopefully processes processes it and gets a copy to you by mail or maybe if you're lucky, they'll give you a phone call and tell you they're ready to be picked up. But it's a complete waiting game and there's nothing that's tracked or um, a process that's standardized in any which way. Which is why you're a big fan of blockchain solutions, right? Oh, uh, well, uh, <laughs> any solution is better than paper copies and handwriting things and sliding a medical records request under a closed door in hopes that somebody steps on it when they open the door and when they're back in the office on a Monday. So absolutely, blockchain is definitely something that I've been following. Um, I've created also, co-founded my own solution to try to digitize and streamline some of the common barriers that patients face through Unblock Health. And one of the things that it addresses is this process of medical records request as well as filing a medical records addendum if you find an error in your record.
0: How old is Unblock Health and what has been done under this uh, initiative that's actually uh, striving not only for access to data from healthcare providers, but also medical devices and apps? So I thought that was very interesting.
1: Oh, it's a newborn. We launched it at the end of last year. And the platform is created. We have the coding and, the, and we are ready to launch. We had an early invite process for patients and we have patients and advocates lined up. And what we are doing now is disseminating our process. We are building awareness as to what the barriers are. And we are not just talking and complaining about it. We have solutions in place for hospitals, hospitals, to implement that can fully integrate with their system to get rid of this faxing and handwritten nonsense that patients go through digitizing the process for the hospital side and for the patient side. So ideally you can request from your phone. I need a medical records request. I need it sent here and you can coordinate it with a a few touches of a few buttons and then forward facing another issue. And you mentioned the. The digital aspect of wearables, remote patient monitoring, any devices, there's no process in place for patients to request their information from any of these digital technologies. There's significant information blocking happening. And when you speak, I have physically called and spoken to manufacturers and they tell me that, you know, these devices weren't designed to give patients their data. You wouldn't know what to do with the data. Oh, that's not necessary. Your care team is getting the data. And, and when you go to the office, they'll tell you, you know, what you need to do. Well, why do I have to wait two weeks? Why, why can't I get a copy of my information? I want the information. I want to be engaged in my care And I can't get to it. And it's extremely frustrating. So I think building that awareness, we're hoping to allow patients to have an avenue. And we also want to be able to quantitate this because, you know, you can't measure the impact if there's nothing to measure. So here we have a standardized solution that we can hopefully track over time and see what differences are happening and what the adoption is and what change is happening where. And the fourth pillar is really this request for transparency, People are so intrigued and interested and frustrated by the headlines because the general person doesn't understand the basics of what happens with their data, the process of aggregation, data de-identification, what HIPAA legally allows, and they're appalled when the press reports on it. That's our only source of patient education, so Unblock Health is hoping to educate patients as to what is happening through human data science, what their rights are, and hopefully provide a channel to request transparency where, again, a digital manner that patients can submit to their healthcare organization or their device manufacturer or to an aggregator to say, well, you know what? Tell me where my data went. I want transparency as to who's been looking at it, where it's been sold and shared. Wouldn't
0: it be easier if there was a legislation that would demand manufacturers to do that?
1: Absolutely, but nothing is easy, right? So um, I think I I personally have committed to these four pillars with my co-founder Shahid Shah. We want to tell patients that no one is essentially coming to save you. And it sounds harsh, but the sooner everyone recognizes that, and they are also empowered with tools to help themselves, we can make a difference. Um, I think the entire ecosystem is so focused on consumerism and trying to change the behavior of patients. You know, patients are lazy and non-compliant and stupid and non-adherent, and they don't show up for appointments and they're frequent flyers. But what about the issue when it's not the patient that's the problem, it's the ecosystem there's no tools out there, digital tools that are digital health necessary tools to now hold the ecosystem accountable when it's lazy, when it's non compliant, when it's non adherent, when it's not doing what it's supposed to legally be doing. So I want to level the playing field and I think there's a great opportunity for empowerment, engagement, transparency, and most importantly, autonomy.
0: I think it's so surprising to see the difference between medical reality and all the innovation that's out there, or it's out there, at least in theory, you know. So if you're in digital health, you see so many startups, so many ideas, so many innovations happening, but then on the playing field, in reality, there's still so many things that are not um, addressed or are not solved with problems that in fact, already have solutions?
1: Well, there's one thing that everyone should be striving for is that we should be partnering with patients. That concept of partnership and co-design is not a nice-to-have or a feel-good thing that you included a patient. It's solid business strategy. And when I look at the landscape of upcoming technologies and innovations, you can see which ones are going to fail from a patient perspective because that's not the realities of life with a diagnosis. So if you're not partnering, and I'm not saying one patient, you really need to partner with many patients because there's so many different aspects. There's a spectrum to each diagnosis. Uh, You're going to miss the mark on what actually will be useful and have a great uptake and mass adoption.
0: Uh, one of the speakers that I have in the patient series is uh, Roy Stern- Sternin, and he's the first ever chief patient officer for the National Institute of Health Research uh, in Austria, you know. So, um, he managed or they managed to recognize the need to have such an entity there on the daily basis. But I'm just wondering that perhaps, um, uh, companies, or uh, yeah, let's say mostly companies, perhaps they don't really know what they would do with the patient if he were there full time, you know. So, I don't know if you have any thoughts there.
1: I want to point out, too, another fatal error that a lot of startups and innovators make. Only designing for the patient or to improve the doctor patient relationship. We're seeing a huge rise in care partners or caregivers that are supporting patients that become heat seeking missiles and will do anything to improve the life of their loved one. And we're not building solutions. Their unmet needs are significantly different than the patient needs. When you think about a patient, there's four categories that I Professionally, have now come to understand of a patient experience and trajectory. You have your healthy, well, proactive wellness seekers. You have people who may have an acute encounter with healthcare. Then you cross this divide where you go into now chronic illness, where now you're living with something your whole life one chronic illness or many comorbidities. And the fourth category is someone or people who have a life-altering, life-limiting, earth-shattering diagnosis, cancer, rare disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS. Once you cross that boundary into chronic illness and earth-shattering, it's no longer a patient experience. It's no longer consumerism. It's no longer healthcare. It's survival. People are doing what they need to do to survive, and often they're surrounded by loved ones who are willing to do anything. And that component of that care partner and the power of empowering that care partner with technologies and tools to help them navigate and support their loved one is critical to recognize and understand. Can we stop a little bit more uh, with the challenges
0: that patients get into when they get such a diagnosis, you know, one of the greatest fears is the fear from discrimination based on health. So in your experiences, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate employment, consequently health insurance in the US, and the rest that comes with it?
1: I mean, absolutely. I mean, women fear telling their superiors and their bosses and colleagues that they're expecting a baby. I mean that's that's a reality and and that's that's a normal part of life. Now, when you're faced with a chronic illness or a chronic diagnosis, there's also sensitive diagnoses, a mental health situation, a substance abuse disorder. Um, maybe there's some type of, of abuse, domestic violence, trauma. There's many things that carry a lot of st- wrongfully uh, carry stigma and shame. And that causes a big problem that people worry about. What about a pre-existing condition or a disability or something like a cancer diagnosis? What does this mean for my insurance coverage? What does this mean for a potential job? What if there's something hereditary that is found? How could that impact my children's future or other family members' future? I mean, these are not just fears. These are realities that people question and are really concerned about, especially when we talk about data and data practices and privacy matters
0: did you come across any of the stories that were successfully resolved you know can you give us any examples of how people manage to keep their jobs or thrive in the workplace despite their condition.
1: You know, I I see a also a spectrum. I mean, you can't be discriminated against because of your diagnosis, but that's not to say it doesn't happen. Um there are some places of work with patients that I collaborate with that are incredibly supportive, that allow them the time off to attend appointments, that allow them flexible time to work from home, that are understanding of uh, allowing remote access and attending meetings virtually and and more lenient with deadlines. There are other situations where it's almost crystal clear that this person is being pressured to walk away from their position. I don't think we have a solution. Um, I, I also will point out to a big problem, and it's being recognized here in the United States, is the people who are really the care partners. Think about, um, so I, I'm a, a care partner to two disabled adults. I have my own family. I'm also a patient with a, a chronic uh, illness. How do you juggle aging parents, your own family, your own career, Loved ones, which you may be the primary caregiver for, there isn't a lot of support in the workplace to try to juggle all of these things. When you try to understand what caregiving looks like boots on the ground, it's a full-time job and it's not appreciated enough what goes into the day-to-day routine of caring for someone who has a chronic or life-altering diagnosis, let alone if you're in that sandwich generation, as they call it, caring for aging parents, caring for young children, and potentially managing your own health condition. Which
0: all boils down also to a very important issue. And that's time in one of the interviews. When you were asked what you, if you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? You said without hesitation, waiting. You know, so, and I thought that that was such a great word to to summarize why being sick and or being a chronic patient is so debilitating because it literally eats away time because of the inefficiencies in the healthcare
1: system. That's where I feel the power of technology could come and really transform healthcare. It's this waiting. It's this lack of coordination in workflow and processes. It's how long it takes records to move through a system when there's no reason for these bottlenecks. It's how long it takes for our our results to be relayed to us from a biopsy when we're sitting there anxiously for days waiting for that phone call to come. It's for how long we wait for an insurance company to Uh, uh, review a case for an appeal on a denial when you're waiting for a life-saving medication. It's how long it takes to enroll in a clinical trial, to find a clinical trial, to, to even be able to consider enrolling in it. And then all of the paperwork, it takes too long. And when you realize how precious your time is... Every minute that we lose to inefficient workflow and processes and manual paper-based, facts-based systems is a minute lost to our disease instead of living the best life that we can be.
0: Which kind of brings us back to the first question which was, what was the situation like 20 years ago when your mother and later you were diagnosed? Do you feel that the technologies are helping already by today, that things are improving because of that?
1: You know, and I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here really racking my brain to try to give you something. There is no lack of technology that we have available to us. I don't see significant differences in the vast majority of ways that we do things. Perhaps someone would say, well, you know what, 20 years ago when everything was paper-based and records were written by hand, um, now we have electronic health records. It's not to say that there's not improvements, but the overall experience, especially when you have a chronic illness or, or a or a life altering condition i have to say we have uh, to roll up our sleeves and work harder together to to improve it when you work with patients um and
0: try to empower empower them and help them navigate the healthcare system do you feel like you're ever seen as a troublemaker because of what you do
1: <laughs> you know it's an interesting question i i'll give you two examples when you go into a situation to help someone, someone will reach out to me. Um, I have the privilege of working with people at some of the most difficult, darkest times in their lives. And I'm very honored to be able to be led into someone's life and trusted with what's going on and seeing the messiness of what's happening I get to go into the clinic and to the hospitals and cancer centers and see the clinical aspects. I also get to see the aftermath. Now, with that comes a lot of family. And where there's challenges is around end of life. Um, a lot of family friction, challenges, disagreements come up. And there's a lot of finger pointing and blaming and you try to unify everyone at that moment to see the situation at hand. But it's a very emotional, high stress situation for everyone when they say, you know, see their mom or their sister or their father dying and they have to make a decision. Right. Um, from my experience of doing this for 20 years, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have an advanced directive and to talk about end of life more proactively throughout life. So we're not waiting until it's too late to have that conversation. That is a gift. And death is very taboo and uncomfortable to talk about. But having even small snippets of conversation of what your wishes may be should something change can be a, a, a gift to yourself and to your family uh, more than you could ever imagine. That
0: is a very difficult topic and also end-of-life care, um, a specific specialty inside medicine that's that's changing. Different things are acceptable today that, that they weren't, um, in the past. When we're talking about palliative care, uh, we're talking about managing pain, which can sometimes mean that you don't aggressively treat the diseases just, you know, to treat them. So it's, there's quite a lot, uh, happening in, in this area alongside with the awareness of the psychological help that's needed, um, in in this very sensitive time for families.
1: I do a lot of work in the palliative care space and there's a lot of miseducation and misinformation in just that alone so to your point as soon as people hear palliative care they panic and say (gasps) I'm not ready to give up I'm not ready to die and palliative care is really meant to be an extension and an enhancement of the care team and can be added to the care team concurrently while treatment is happening. And it treats not just the patient and supports not just the patient, but the family, entire family, very holistically as well. And it's proven and documented and reported to improve not just quality of life, but overall patient outcomes as well great area um, for digital health and technology, telemedicine, as well as documenting patient reported outcomes and wearables and things to more carefully track patients um, to prevent, for example, emergency room admissions or any unnecessary aggressive treatment that could be perhaps managed uh, significantly ahead of time.
0: Uh, Before founding Enlightening Results in 2010, you actually worked as Director of Medical and Scientific Affairs at a data analytics company that collaborated with Pharma and Biotech. What was your perception of patients at that time? Did you have any direct contact with any or was it more an analysis of their data?
1: I... Took this leap of faith, um, much to my mentor's disagreement and disappointment. They said, you know what, pursue your postdoc and, and stay the, stay the course. Eventually, you know, you'll, you'll run a lab. And I took a leap of faith on uh, this startup, a data analytics company. And the whole concept of using data to be able to work smarter, um, fascinated me. And I, really hoped. So this was after my mom was diagnosed and had gone through her treatment. And if what was appealing to me was, could there possibly be a way to bring clinical trials and new treatments to patients faster? Knowing that there's people that are waiting for treatments, but aren't connected to them and knowing that clinical trials were not accruing quickly, how could we use data to better select clinical trial sites to better select the key opinion leaders that should be driving the research, who should be contacted and how should patients be contacted about trials or notified and educated about the clinical trial process. I was fascinated by that. So at the time, um, I did not have any um one-to-one engagements with patients. I was on the other side, hoping that my work and data analysis and crunching and natural language processing would bring clinical trials to patients quicker. This was a, a data issue, you know, which
0: kind of brings me to today or actually, let's say last year, when uh, Google announced the partnership with Ascension and uh, the public was pretty, pretty upset uh, because of this partnership and because of the fear that patient data would leak into unwanted uh, places. And you yourself were, uh, you wrote a long post of why this move was wrong. But um, I think this is an interesting contrast, you know, uh, your opposition on one hand and your knowledge that you have based on the work that you did uh, in your past with patient data analysis and knowing how useful this kind of uh, partnerships can be. So m- perhaps just a brief comment uh, about this. What's the situation today, almost four months later, and would it be simply just uh Unproblematic if patients would be aware of this uh, partnership, uh, despite the fact that in practice nothing would be different.
1: Yeah, that's that's a terrific question. So to be clear, so my work um, heavy on data analysis, all types of data, not actual patient records or patient data from medical records or any wearables or anything along those lines. However, I have a great appreciation for the power of. Good clean data. Now here comes this announcement with Google, which which I wrote about. and what's frustrating is is everyone uses HIPAA, to block patients from their records. There's no education or transparency about data practices and human data science. Patients have no rights when they get sick or face a medical emergency. They show up at the hospital and they're automatically sucked into this HIPAA compliance system and there's no choice. There's no opt out. There's no anything. Meanwhile, big tech comes in and strolls in, and because of a BAA agreement under HIPAA, they can have access to all of these records electronically, seamlessly, on the scale of millions of records. So here, it almost feels like I'm living in the twilight zone, where here I am filling out pieces of paper for patients, driving medical records requests across state lines, walking them to offices to shove them under a closed door because people are out for lunch. But here on the other side of the coin, these business arrangements are being done for data science and to optimize operations under a a BAA And there's seamless access to data that supposedly is protecting privacy. At this point, from a patient perspective, why can't we allow people to choose to have a transparent working knowledge base of these practices? And why are we so afraid to allow people to have a choice to either proactively opt in or opt out? I actually believe we're stifling innovation in this way. And as a patient, who's to say I want Google to have my data? Maybe I wanted Apple to have my data. Why can't I have that choice? So there's so many different conversations. It cannot continue to to go this way um, from a privacy standpoint. I think that clearly HIPAA was not written to live in, reside and dictate this space and people and entities are taking crystal clear advantage of every legal loophole available and patients aren't stupid and we know what's going on and it's a very powerless situation to be in because patients don't have high-powered attorneys, they don't have high-powered lobbying teams. What's going to happen is now people are very uh, careful of where their data goes and trust is really what's going to power the next era of who people engage with. And I think that's really what's crystal clear. Um, Big tech and all of these companies have a great opportunity to really go above and beyond and set an apex of ethics and a new standard in privacy, transparency, and partnership with patients And the first entities to do that, that's where everyone is going to flock, and they wouldn't imagine doing business with anything less than that. So I'm very eager to see what's going to transpire in the very near future, so who's going to really uh, set the bar so high that there's going to be no turning back.
0: We talked a lot about the patients and the problems they're facing inside the healthcare system, but... There There's one question that I think is also very important, which is we talk a lot about the patient rights, you know, and what patients uh, are faced with that's unfair to them. But what about their duties? What would you say are basic patient duties? Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there's no course on being a professional patient. There's no degree in being a patient, so how could anyone actually know what to do when you're not taught? There's no YouTube video on it. There's no book on it. So in some ways, what happens is people are dropped into the healthcare system and dragged through it. What? With respect to duties, it's a great question. And I think that there are patients who are super engaged. You have your advocates, you have patient leaders, you have people on social media and in advocacy who are guiding what is called peer peer health support. And they're really leading the charge and are serving as a beacon of light for those who maybe are just getting started, who are just diagnosed and lifting other people up And I think the duty of all of us as patients is to lift each other up and to help us network and hack the system together. You know, professionals always network at conferences and meetings and on LinkedIn. Patients don't have a formal place to do that. And I think a lot of different disease states um, have their own communities that are very powerful and also have leaders. And I think more and more we're seeing Even through the likes of social media platforms like Twitter, we're seeing the benefit of coming together that it shouldn't just be colon cancer over here and diabetes over here and the disability community here and the chronic illness group over there. There's power in numbers and us coming together and sharing best practices on how to really navigate because a lot of us are suffering from the same barriers because it's the system that's broken. It's not us. Everyone has led us to believe through very clever marketing that it's the patients that need change. But it's not really true because there's a whole component of being a patient that is a struggle because the system is broken. So I think the duty is to spread the word that A, no one is coming to save you and you need to take charge of your own life and run it like your own business meeting. In the same way you wouldn't show up for a business meeting, I tell my patients, you have to prepare have a list of questions, set a notebook aside, find your voice, be firm, be respectful, have a plan, bring in a care partner, and start working together. Become your own missile, heat-seeking missile for information. Find other patients to link up with, and and that's really powerful because now you're no longer alone. And the worst thing to do, I think, the duty of all of us is to say, uh, and and hope that no one is navigating their diagnosis alone. And I think if we can accomplish that and provide patients with the tools they need when they need them, I think we can really start seeing authentic change.
0: That's uh, amazing advice, I would say. One thing that I did think of was, though, that... You can be as prepared as you would like, but, you know, when you're in the doctor's office, potentially waiting for a horrible news, you're very vulnerable, you know that this is one appointment and you're probably not going to see the doctor for a very long time, you know, and then when you step into the doctor's office, he's the authority, you can be nervous and suddenly you can forget about all the advice or all the uh, points or, or, or the whole to-do list that you prepared prior to stepping into the office. So I don't know, maybe a word or two to, of a device there.
1: I mean, that's, I, I can personally relate to it. I've been there. I've lived that. Um, I'm also a mom. I have two children. I've, I've navigated some scary care where, where I haven't been able to, to speak up for my children because I, being so paralyzed by what you're hearing, you are 150% correct, which is why we need to focus and prepare for every appointment. Most people, I mean, who actually looks forward to going to their doctor appointment? No one, uh, no one is like, oh, this is great. I'm going to go to the doctor's office. I can't wait to sit there for hours and spend three minutes with my doctor and get a cancer diagnosis. No one is excited for that. But the best thing we can do is prepare. And it's simple things, dedicating a notebook and a folder, bringing someone with you, discussing, you know, why am I here? What are my most uh, critical symptoms? What is keeping me up at night? Those three questions alone, Focus you as to what you're hoping to accomplish in that appointment. Discussing with a care partner, whether it's a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, if you talk to that person and bring them with you, that helps ground you because you might be deer in headlights, but that person will kick into gear and say, you know what, we still have one more question. A lot of people say, well, you know what, my care, my care partner or friend or colleague can't make it. Call into the appointment. Most people have a cell phone and put it on speaker. Tell your doctor that someone is calling in. It is an asset in your pocket to not be alone. And in the same way that any of us that are uh, do... Uh, participate in business meetings? Sure. Some of them are, are uncomfortable. Some of them are nerve wracking. Some of them we have to instill confidence and believe in ourselves. And I think that's this cultural shift from paternalistic medicine to participatory, recognizing that you do have a right and you do have a voice and you should participate in shared decision making. because the culture has always been, I better be quiet. I better not question my doctor. I better just sit there and nod and smile. I remember when I told my mom what I was doing with patient advocacy, and she said, are you crazy? The doctors aren't going to want to see you. You can't question the doctor. And it's just one example of this cultural shift. And doctors want to partner with patients. So There's this whole cultural shift that's happening that's ready to welcome this in. And I think we need to give patients the space, the permission, and the encouragement to do a little bit more, to push the envelope a little bit farther, but still be respectful and recognize that, you know what? In many cases, this needs to be a partnership, a relationship, and a team. This isn't a one-off thing where I'm going to the doctor and it's a total waste of time. Like any other goal in life, these things take practice, take time, and, and most importantly, trust. And that's the way that we get there by preparing and and putting our time into our care, because ultimately, it's the business of our life, our health care, and what we need to live our best life where we are. Exactly. Though I must admit, if
0: I were a doctor, and if I tried to put myself in that situation, I would totally freak out if I talked to two people instead of one, and then one was
1: even taking notes, you know? It can be, it definitely can. It's different, right? But but you know what? I think when you realize that we're on the same team, we're on the same team. We all, we want, and there's many patients that say, you know, I want to help my doctor. I know he or she doesn't have all the time. I want to make this crystal clear, short, succinct, and get to the point so that we both get something out of this and it's productive. I want my doctor's medical expertise. I want his insights. I want him to guide me but I don't want him wasting time on basics. Let me do some of that legwork myself or find a way to catch up a little bit so I can participate.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a member of Health Podcast Network. To browse through other episodes and topics as well, do visit www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Also, check out www.healthpodcastnetwork.com. It's pretty amazing. Stay tuned.